Want a fresh take on what's going on with the Saints, LSU, the betting world, and the NFL? Then you've picked the right place. Jim Derry has plenty of datitude, and he's ready to tell you the way it is. Well, the way he thinks it is. Where you at, New Orleans? And hello to all my friends around the country who are just now realizing it ain't easy to get a reservation for a nice restaurant on Mother's Day. Hello, I am Jim Derry, sports betting writer at the Times-Picayune, the Advocate, and bet.nola.com. And yes, it is not easy. Why do we do this every year? Every year, we forget that Mother's Day is here. How do we forget Mother's Day? I mean, maybe we didn't forget Mother's Day. But it creeps up on you. I think it's because it's the beginning. You know, if it was later in May, you would realize, oh, it's May. It's Mother's Day. But you're not thinking that. April, the NFL draft's going on. The Pelicans were playing until last week. You're preoccupied. That is no excuse to forget your wife, your mother, all of our favorite moms out there. We're, we're forgetful folks. I mean, we just are. So to all you moms and wives out there taking care of our children, we salute you, even if we are a forgetful lot. It's who we are. We always say we're going to change. Next year, we're going to remember. And then we don't. We're dumbasses. It, it, it's just that's, that's all there is to say. I mean, we're just dumbasses. It's, it's not going to change now. I mean, you know, you get into your 50s and you're still trying to remember. You know, you've been married like me for 14 years and you're still forgetting. You're just a dumbass. It's all right. This is Datitude, episode number 70 for a Friday, May the 6th, 2022. What did you got? Was the 4th with you? On Tuesday, did you Cinco de Mayo it up? Did you Margarita it up yesterday? I didn't. I've had a sick kid for a week. Got home from Vegas. Uh, speaking of wonderful mothers, my own um, wife, Drea, go to Vegas for the draft. I'm not uh, touched down for five minutes, and suddenly... My smallest daughter, little Lou, little Lucy, got sick, and she was just super sick. I mean, I was like, and my wife had to take off of work and deal with her and and make her feel as comfortable as she could possibly. The girl, poor little girl, didn't eat for five days. She just ate yesterday, and and um, I hope anybody out there listening whose kids got the same virus because I know it was going around. Man, it was nothing pretty. It was it was really bad. Uh, but yesterday was the first day she ate without uh, without it coming back up. I guess is the nice way to say it. And boy, did she eat! A little six year old who went from forty two pounds to thirty six pounds ate like there was no tomorrow. She ate more at dinner than I ate, and that's saying something. So I hope uh, your kids don't get this. And I thank so much. For moms like my wife to to be able to do what you know 
what they do. It's an eight, I know. But uh, thank, thanks to them. Um, and we celebrate the mothers this weekend on Mother's Day, this Sunday. But before we get to Sunday, there's a lot going on. And there's a lot that happened this past week that we want to talk about here on Datitude. And we have a special guest. We have two guests today. But uh, one of the guests, super, super special story. Wonderful. Just going through the whole event. Troy Riley, who was, he and his wife Amanda were chosen at random. I guess it wasn't truly random. He tells us how he was picked in a little bit, and we're going to let him tell that story. I'm not going to tell it here. But he was chosen to, he and his wife were chosen to be a part of the NFL draft experience, and they got to announce two of the Saints' picks, one each. They also got to meet Roger Goodell. Uh, he tells us a little bit about Roger Goodell. And it, he, he expels some of these myths that I've been talking about here on Datitude for a little bit. And actually throughout other shows that I've done. Roger Goodell does not hate the Saints. The NFL doesn't hate the Saints. Now, maybe there's a certain officiating crew that hates the Saints, but that's a whole other story. And I'm still pissed. I don't want to go through that again. But um, he has a, just a wonderful story to tell. We're going to get to him in just a minute. Um, and I, I usually lead off with when Jeff Duncan's on, we usually lead with Jeff Duncan. But Troy's story is so great. He's going to be our first guest. And then we are going to have Dunk on. And Dunk uh, is a horse racing aficionado, if not an expert. And he's going to give us some insight into the Kentucky Derby. If you're so inclined to go bet it, it is one of the great events. And now, look, I got to cover the NFL draft last week for the first time in my long career as a journalist. And um, it was so busy, I didn't really get to enjoy it as much as I would have liked to. I certainly didn't enjoy it as much as Troy. But it was, it was a unique experience nonetheless. Um, but you guys don't want to hear about my story. You want to hear about Troy's. But Dunk's going to come on and talk about the Kentucky Derby and uh, his experiences at, uh, at Churchill Downs throughout the years. He usually goes. He is a Louisville native, uh, in case you didn't know that. He has obviously been living here in New Orleans for a couple decades now, and just he's the best columnist there is. There's, uh, I don't care if I'm biased or not, he is. And he is more in touch with these New Orleans Saints than I think maybe anybody. And so he comes on, talks about the Derby for a little bit. We talk about the Saints draft. <clears throat> Excuse me. He talks about the Honey Badger coming to town, back home, the St. Augustine alum and LSU product after 10 years in the NFL, finally back home where he wanted to be, where the Saints wanted him to be. And I, you know, there are certain free agent signings that make that much of a difference. And I think he's going to be that for the Saints. Um, you know, Demario Davis comes to mind, and uh, you go along and you think of of the last 15, 20 years. Obviously, Drew Brees at the top of that list. But you're talking about a guy who can come in here, and this defense is for real. It's legit. I mean, I'm not being a homer, uh, but I'm not being Derry Downer today either because this defense is for real. Uh, and I get into all that with Dunk. In just a little bit. And we also talk about a book that he's going to be working on for the next year with Steve Gleason. 
Uh, great story. Uh, we all know the Steve Gleason story, but uh, the way Dunk's going to get into it and uh, he's going to spend a lot of time with Steve uh, over the course of the next year and tell his story, and I think you and I both know that's probably going to be a movie, uh, and it should be. So uh, we get into all that in just a minute. Um, I'll share my thoughts about the draft uh, as we go along here, I think. But before, before I do that, I'll do that in between uh, Troy and, and Jeff uh, in just a minute. I want to get to Troy's story because it is that important. Well, not important, I guess. Uh, it's important to Troy and his wife, Amanda. But uh, it, it's, it's such a fascinating, unique story that uh, I was so happy that we'd be able to tell it here on Datitude. And uh, just to get up there and give Roger Goodell a hug like he was a draft pick, and hear the stories from behind the scenes and meeting up with fans from the other 31 teams in the NFL who also got to share in in this experience. And uh, had a little incident 30 minutes after he got off the plane in Vegas. All that good stuff. Here he is. Welcoming into the Datitude podcast on a Friday morning, a special guest, an old friend of mine, Troy Riley, who uh, I'm jealous. Um was able to was was picked to present at the uh, NFL draft and um, present. I think you you did what Demarco Jackson? No, I actually did um, Olave, oh. first round pick. We um, we walked out, we handed off that jersey, and then actually got to make the draft pick. I did the hundred and sixty first pick, and my wife was fortunate enough to be able to do the hundred ninety fourth pick. That is phenomenal. So. First off, Troy, tell me a little bit about how you got picked. I mean, this is a story that that Saints fans are, of course, not only going to be jealous about, but uh, they are just going to be wanting to know. They're going to want to relive your your story here, and I think it's one hell of a story. So tell us how you got picked first off. Um, First off, my wife got an email from the Saints organization for season ticket holders to um, apply for a link. So if you're not a season ticket holder, you obviously want to become one. I know there's a waiting right. list, but you obviously want to become a season ticket holder. Um, and from there, you submit an application, just kind of um, pictures of you, you and your Saints gear or how you go about setting up your your your, your Saints party, stuff like that. And um, tell them a little bit about yourself. And I, I talked a little bit about me and my wife being in the military and having uh, 55 years of combined service between the both of us. That's phenomenal. And lo and behold, they 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 called us on a Tuesday and said, "Hey guys, get ready, y'all are going to Vegas." <laughs> that is that your wife's name is Amanda, correct? Correct, Amanda. Yeah. Um, so, when, how 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 long before the draft did you get the notice? Um, it was about fourteen days out. We found out um, okay. that we were that we were picked to go and. Uh, Again, we kept it a secret all the way up until the day we got there when we actually, you know, went into the, the Saints ticket or the season ticket member reception where Roger Goodell actually came out and talked to us for a little bit. And uh, but we kept it a secret all that time. So it's about 14 days of, of a lot of excitement and packing and repacking. And, uh, you know, you got to bring your best Saints gear when you go. So Right. <laughs> and, you, and, they, and you said you had to keep it a secret. You had to keep it a secret all the way until you got to Vegas. Well, we didn't. It's not that we had to keep it a secret. We could have told the whole world about it, but we wanted to keep it a secret just because, you know, we wanted to surprise everybody, obviously the families and stuff like that. And we wanted to share that experience with them when it was kind of happening as opposed to leading up to it. 
Right. Okay. Now, now tell me a little bit about, um, uh, we were talking off the air. You had a little incident where you only got to see the draft with one eye. What the hell happened there? Yeah, um, just my luck. You know, I, I win a contest, <laughs> a, a once-in-a-lifetime contest, and then um, in the process of, of heading up there, uh, some kind of way I scratched my eye, my eyeball or whatever. I wound up in urgent care about 30 minutes after getting off the plane, wound up in urgent care. Um, they patched up the eye, did everything they had to do. And, it, of course, it's funny because the doctor, I'm in there, you know, urgent cares aren't always the most expeditious places to go. Uh, exactly. But, <laughs> They, um, I, I had some place to be for four o'clock because that's when we were supposed to sit down and have a meet and greet with Roger Goodell with the other 32 teams that sent uh -huh. players, uh, uh, season ticket members up there. So I told the doctor, I said, listen, I said, I know you, you got a lot more things to do. And um, I'm sure I'm just a small piece of what that is or whatever. But my eye itself, I said, if there any way you can get me out of here before four o'clock. Uh -huh. And she looks at me, she says, sir, she goes, don't worry about it. I'll have you out of here in 30 minutes. So um, they, she patched me up, did everything she had to do, got back to the hotel, got dressed, went on downstairs and didn't miss a beat. You see, that seems to me like <clears throat> that should happen to a Buccaneers fan. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be pirates, right? So, I mean, no, it happens yeah, to the Saints much. fan. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what's funny is I actually talked to him once we got to the reception because they had the NFC South sitting together. Um, so uh -huh. they had the you know, the Bucks, the Panthers, and the Falcons there. All great people, by the way. You, they couldn't have sent a better group of, of fans to represent their their um, their fan base. But um, I did ask one of them jokingly. I'm like, hey, do you guys have an extra patch that y'all can loan me for my eye? Because it's, uh, it's, it's bothering me today. <laughs> love, maybe, maybe Tom Brady had it. Well, I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, Troy, well, tell me, you know, another story that, that I saw when I started looking through your stuff is – and, uh, you know, you wanted to have the Roger Goodell hug. And uh, how did that go? Um, well, long story short, it, it kind of started at the season ticket member reception. Roger Goodell, it was a personal meet and greet. And there was a, um, it was a story he told us about how the actual player commissioner hug came about. I, as far as the details, I think it's kind of personal for that NFL player who had that experience. So I won't share all of it. Right. But it is a tradition. It has become a tradition now for, for you know, obviously the players when they're drafted to come out and uh, hug Roger Goodell. So listening to the story, I was moved by it. And, you know, obviously I don't have a, the, the athletic ability that any of these players have. So my <laughs> chances of ever being drafted are slim to none. But um, besides the fact of how old we are, and we'll, we'll leave that. We'll leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. So um, they, they, they bring us in the back and, you know, that's a whole separate experience as well. Going into the Jersey room and you actually hear the, the, the player announced that the Saints pick about usually five to 10 minutes before the whole rest of the world finds out. Uh -huh. So they give you the Jersey and you're standing in the tunnel and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously standing there and I'm, I'm nervously excited, anticipating walking out in front of, you know, I think they had 150,000 people on the yep. ground that day, plus millions of people watching. Um, so I'm nervously anticipating to walk out and I'm like thinking to myself, okay, how, how's this going to go? You know, you've been thinking about this. What, are, are you going to do it? Are you actually going to go through with it? You're going to ask him for a hug. Uh -huh. So I come walking out the tunnel and, um, as I'm walking up to him, he goes to shake my hand. And I was like, pretty much in a short minute, it was just Roger. I said, listen, I know I'm not an NFL player, but my whole family's watching back home right now, man. And I would just really appreciate this hug. And, uh, lo and behold, he hugged me. And then, um, <laughs> He kind of shook my hand, 
and we took the jersey and held it up and everything. And then he kind of hugged me again. And he looked at me and he said, now, how did that feel? And I looked at him with, with just that excitement, looking at everything else. I said, man, I feel like I just got drafted. <laughs> that is awesome. That is an awesome story. You know, I've been saying for years, Troy, you know, Saints fans like to, well, some of them are joking, some of them are, are serious, but uh, that, that Roger Goodell hates the Saints. I think we can now say for sure that Roger Goodell does not hate the Saints. What I will say is this, um, <laughs> okay. when we had, I, I, don't, I don't believe he hates the Saints himself personally, but I think the NFL has a beef against the Saints. Okay. Because when enough. it came time, I was, it was my, it was told that when it came time for the Saints to make their draft picks where I was actually up there, they showed the Cam Jordan and they obviously showed Roger Goodell. But when it was time for the actual Saints fans to make the pick, it kind of cut to commercial break at that time. So the uh, family that was sitting back at home with the friends trying to watch it, didn't get to see it. So had we not caught it on camera ourselves, there's a possibility they would have never saw it um, type of thing. So maybe the NFL as a whole has a beef against the Saints, but sitting down and listening to Roger Goodell and seeing him in a different light, I will say um, he's a very humble individual. I think he accepts the fact that he is a villain and he kind of yeah. embraces that. He likes that type of thing. But um, as a whole, he, he, he's just a real good guy, man, from, from my, my personal dealings with him just at the draft this year. My bet is that there are also 31 other teams' fans who think that Roger Goodell hates them. That's just a guess. I, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Except maybe the Jets, well, because the Jets, nobody cares about the Jets one way or the other. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that, because that was part of his speech when he, when he talked to us that day. He said, somebody asked a question about officiating and things, and obviously the Saints have a big, with the Nola Nola yes. going back to 2000. That's right. We have a big team. But he sat there and he said, you know, he's like, look, he says, officiating is an imperfect thing. He said, we try our best, but sometimes things are going to happen. And he said, I can guarantee you that there's 31 other team or 31 other members here that have an issue with officiating and the way it's called and stuff like that. And he said, I guarantee you there's owners out there that have the same thing. And there's millions of fans out there with the same thing as well as players. He goes, it's all we can do is continue to try to get better at it. Um, but it's unfortunate that things like that happen. So, well, I will say this, except for maybe the Raiders and the tuck rule. I don't know that anyone has had um, as bad an ex as bad, at least a one time experience as we've had with the no call, but that's all I'll say on that. So, but overall, yeah, I, I, agree with you. I, I try to, I try to get rid of the concern. I don't think it's a conspiracy. Maybe that one call was a conspiracy. I don't know. But other than that, <laughs> I think uh, we just get hosed maybe on accident or coincidence more than other teams. Um, yeah. Tell, well, tell me, uh, you know, what, what was the whole experience like? I mean, uh, it wasn't, obviously it's not just the moment of going out there and announcing the draft pick and, or, or, or getting the Jersey for Jersey for Chris Olave, just the whole experience. Um, and you, your time in Vegas now, like I told you off the air, I mean, obviously me being in Vegas, I was working the whole time. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to really appreciate. I don't think um, a lot of the things that you were able to appreciate, but uh, just, just talk about it and tell fans who are out there jealous and drooling at the mouth right there, right now about what your experience was like in Vegas. The experience overall was, um, it was, it was phenomenal, completely um, first class the entire time. Um, you know, we, we stayed at the Bellagio, Hotel, you know, the, the flights were, were paid for. The, the Bellagio Hotel was paid for. That's um, When we had the reception, you know, all the 
all of the drinks and the hors d'oeuvres and the food and everything else was catered. It was all, it, it was just all first class phenomenal. Um, the experience itself in the inner circle was something like I, I've always, we all like, you might be in a different light, but the majority of fans like me, we always watch the draft and stuff right. like that. This is the first time we've actually had to experience or got to experience slash live it. And um, it's, it's something that, you have to be invited to. It's not something that you can purchase. You can purchase tickets to kind of be out and about, or you can get the tickets to, or get in for free to kind of stand on the outside of everything. But you're always looking in. To actually be in the inner circle, which is a select group of, of fans, there's not very many that have had this opportunity. But to be in that inner circle and see all the behind the scenes workings of how this production actually goes off is just, it's eye-opening. But it's an exciting, like, just experience that if you ever are fortunate enough to do it, I don't ever turn it down. Let's put it that way. If you're ever fortunate enough to do it, it's something you'll never forget. Well, us in the press, we're actually, um, we're staged quite a ways away. Well, I'll say quite a ways away, about uh, a block away from where you guys all were. And we, so, I mean, I, I this was actually my first draft cover. I've been in this business for 30 plus years, the first time I've ever been able to cover an NFL draft in person. I've done it um, from different places here in New Orleans, but uh, never at the draft itself. So I, I'm, I got to say, I, I was a little jealous too. I thought it was one of the coolest things I've seen. And to be a part of something like this, I can only imagine what you and your wife, uh, just the experience and, and something obviously you never forget. No, no, man. We, we, that's all we kept talking about. They actually had two saints reps there. Um, not, not chaperones, so to speak, but if we had any questions about things, there was two saints reps that sat with us the whole time. We also had an NFL rep who was assigned to us to ensure or to the division. They were assigned to us to make sure that if we had any questions, they were answered. If we needed anything, they took care of it and stuff. And, um, again, man, it just, it's such an incredible experience and it's it's hard probably in the in a little bit of time that we have to capture it all but if if anybody ever has the opportunity to do this it, it is something they'll never forget what was your favorite moment actually the hug with roger goodell man that's, <laughs> How bad that, that stood out to me more than anything the second favorite moment was actually seeing my wife on stage and um and being able to do the same exact thing that i did because normally it's only allowed for one season ticket member Right. But in the way that this worked out, I don't know if it was the fact of our military service or what, but everything I got to do, she got to do in a separate, in a separate pick. And so it's like, I, I don't have any experience that she doesn't have now because she lived the same exact thing I did, which was incredibly amazing. That, that it really is amazing. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you before I let you go, cause I know uh, you got work to do um, on this Friday morning, Troy Riley, by the way, I, I I do bad. I forget to introduce my guest more than once. Um, Troy, last thing I'm going to ask you, and I know Saints fans are going to want to know this because I think they would, they would probably partake. Is was there any like smack talking going on with sitting at that NFC South table, or maybe you go prod the Cowboys fan, or whatever it is? I mean, was there any of that going on back there? A little good natured ribbon. Yeah, there was. Um, and again, like I said, you couldn't have asked for a better group of people that, that, that came from the NFC, the other teams in the NFC South, all good, good people. Um, but yeah, there was, there was plenty of trash talk going on, especially um, just 
with the way with, with everything the way it happened for Tampa Bay and then Tom Brady retiring and then coming out of retirement, the Atlanta uh-huh. Falcons never really seemed to want to do anything, and then Carolina <laughs> and disarray. We had plenty to chat and talk uh-huh. about. Um, so uh, they 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 took their shots at us too, but it was um, it was it was all in fun. Well, Troy, I am uh, I'm thrilled for you. Um, you and I have we haven't talked in a long, long time. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to catch up on Facebook and be able to talk about this. And it's something that I know Saints fans will will want to hear about. And again, the entire time they're listening to this, they're foaming at the mouth, thinking, "I want my Roger Goodell hug." So who knows? Maybe a couple of them will yeah. get it one day. Yeah, hopefully so, man. It, it, it's something that they'll, they'll never forget. Troy Riley, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it, man. Is there a better story than that right now? I mean, if you're a Saints fan. I mean, besides maybe if you got to be on the field for the Super Bowl or something. Um, is there, I mean, there's probably not a better way to be a, a fan and be able to do something like that. What an experience. Uh, and very happy for Troy and his wife, Amanda, and... Um, you know, even though I'm a sports writer, and again, I've told you the experiences of, <clears throat> excuse me, I've told you the experiences of, you know, when you're working, and I grew up being a Saints fan, so I've followed them my entire life, but when you're working, it's different. You, you can't be a fan, and I guess it's something inside that I'm able to separate myself when I'm working. It's not always easy, but you just do it, but there's a part of me that was jealous about that for sure. I mean, you know, I, I like being a fan like everybody else. And when I'm not working on Sundays, which thankfully, for the most part, um, you know, I only have to work like three or four games a year now. So I can be a fan. I can be at home and I can be at least a fan in my living room. <clears throat> and no one else is around because no one wants to be around me when the Saints are playing and uh, I'm home being a fan. Then I turn back into being a sports writer after it's over and somehow separate the fandom from try to be as neutral as possible. Not always easy. But, uh, yeah, I was a little jealous of Troy. But a great story. I'm happy for him and uh, whoever the fan is next year. And maybe we'll have that fan on here as well on Datitude. We are going to move on, though. Before we bring on Jeff Duncan, you know, we talked about the Saints draft all week long. And in case you missed it, you can go back and search any of our shows, either Datitude last week. Live, we were in Las Vegas. Zach Ewing and I were. We talked about it in Datitude. We talked about it across all of our shows, which, you can, be, which can be found on NOLA.com's Facebook or YouTube pages. And actually, we're working on making this podcast a live event uh, coming up shortly, certainly before football season starts next year. Uh, Datitude will be at, be live at least once a week, at least on Fridays. We'll make it a live show uh, where we will invite user comments, and I'm looking forward to that. It still will be, you can still find it no matter how we do this show. You still will be able to find it on demand um, in all of the places where you find your podcast. But eventually, and as I've been doing the past month or so, you can find little clips of the show on NOAA.com's Facebook page uh, and my own personal Facebook page. Um, but again, we're going to work to put the whole show at least again, at least on Fridays, we're going to put the whole show on there, trying to get this a little bit, move it up a little bit. We've been working on it for a couple months. I think we're pretty close, so uh, we'll get there. Um, 
the draft uh, and in all my thoughts uh, throughout what you know if you've been watching our shows you know what I think but uh, just to kind of go through it again a little bit um, if you if you look at the first round itself and you talk about Olave and Penning I mean really I don't think the Saints could have done much better I've heard people talk about fans talk about there were other receivers maybe that might have been better for this team but Duncan and I are going to get into it in a minute. But for this team, Olave probably fits this team better than the other guys because he compliments Michael Thomas in a way that, frankly, the team needed. And so um, I'm going to let Dunk explain that to you. But I felt the same way when they, when they made the pick. Now, I was kind of surprised that they traded up. I'm not sure 100% that they needed to, but maybe they thought that Olave was the – was the piece they really needed. And I don't have a problem because they still got Penning, and that was the other guy that I really wanted in the first round for this team, uh, the guy they really needed. He can plug in right now and play left tackle. The only negatives at all that I've heard about Trevor Penning is that at times he has been flagged here and there a little bit more often than maybe some other, rece- uh, some other linemen. But we'll work on that. Uh, but he's a nasty guy, so to speak, and that's what you need at left tackle. You don't have to worry about moving Ramchek over. Uh, you don't have to shuffle things in your O-line. Now all you need to worry about is getting a little bit more depth there, and obviously running back is an issue. So we'll get into all of that with Dunk. We start with the Derby. We get into the Saints. We talk about his book with Steve Gleason. All coming up right here. Welcoming into the Datitude Podcast on a Friday morning, Jeff Duncan, our own columnist, the advocate, the Times McCune, NOLA.com, bet.nola.com. He's everywhere, writing books. You are a busy man these days. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was adding up this week, JD, how many like little media spots I do. Yeah. And you, you know, they kind of add up on you don't think about them when you're doing them daily. And I was like, this has become like a significant part of my week. And it happens every week, and you can do more if you wanted to do more. Um, and I think that is one of the, it, it made me reflect upon like how long I've been in the business because we didn't ever do those before. I never That's worried right. about podcasts before or, uh, you know, zoom video uh, interviews and all the things that are part of our uh, modern multimedia landscape. It's just, it wasn't even a factor back 20 years ago when I first got here and now it's regular part of your work schedule. And I, I enjoy it. I think it's fun. I think it's, it's funny how people consume news differently. This has been a learning process, too. Uh, you know, my favorite restaurant in town is Clancy's. I'm throwing sure. that plug out there right now. But I go in there. I've been in there so much, J.D., that, like, all the waiters and the staff all know me. And they all know me for different reasons because they consume news all differently. There's guys that only listen to podcasts, and that's what they want to talk about. Then there's guys that see me on my Fox 8 thing, and they're, they're, they'll talk to me about that. And then, of course, there's the regular guys that read the Times-Picune column or NOLA.com, and they all have different ways of consuming news, and we're on these multi-platforms in our, in our world. And that's really kind of opened my eyes to how people consume news today. Do you remember back in the day, and I don't know if it was like still like this when you got there, but I know what it was when I started. Um, 
Tim Ellerby, you had to like go through a, a, a chain of long list to be on a radio show back when we, when we were young pups. Yeah. They didn't want to give away the intellectual property. That's right. And look, and look there's a, there's a, a part of me that understands that because I have to sometimes check myself if I'm doing, uh, you know, my regular Fox eight gig, I have to think, okay, am I giving away something that I haven't written about yet? The time speaking, which is my main job. Am, right. I give, am I giving the information out before my primary employer? And, and you have to kind of uh, calibrate all that when you're doing so many different appearances. Uh, but I, in the, in the greater scheme of things, I think you would agree. I think it's good because it introduces you to more, uh, you know, more readers, viewers, and, uh, you know, news consumers. And it just kind of, I think, broadens our landscape. It took a while, but I think uh, that the powers that be, and not just the old newspaper guys, and I get that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm part of that, you know, I learned under the old newspaper guy, so I get it. But uh, we've had to uh, certainly expand our reach in different ways, if you will. I'm lucky with my side gig because – you know, I broadcast high school sports to side gigs, so I don't have to worry about that part of it uh, that yeah, you right. do. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that any way any of us can get our face or our voice anywhere is is a helpful thing. And uh, we thank you for for helping uh, make this podcast grow. Uh, and it has grown quite a bit since we started this uh, eight or nine months ago. Um, I want to get into. We're going to talk about a couple things today. Um, Obviously, people want to talk about the Saints and the Honey Badger and the draft and all those good things. But uh, I want to start off with the Kentucky Derby because the people that don't know you well, they really don't have to know you well to know this. But uh, the people who haven't followed you closely for the last 25 years here in the city um, won't know that you're a horse racing aficionado. Um, and, uh, you know, I come to you as it's Kentucky Derby weekend, and it's really hard to believe that we're already to Kentucky Derby weekend. Um, I'm the same way you are with horse racing. I'm kind of like that way with golf. And, you know, we've already played the Masters. We're a couple weeks away from the PGA. Um, so in a couple weeks, we'll basically be halfway through the golf season. And uh, it, time is flying by, but uh, I know Kentucky Derby is, uh, if not your favorite weekend, Certainly one of them, and I know uh, you're breaking a, a long streak of being there. Yeah, well, look, I'm a Louisville native, born and raised there. Uh, spent my first twenty-something years of my life in Louisville, and this is basically our Mardi Gras or you know the city's Super Bowl. It's the biggest event in the state, and uh, it's an incredible event. A lot of New Orleanians go up there every year. Uh, when I was going regularly. I would see all kinds of people from New Orleans because it's the classic New Orleans event, Jim. Yeah, it's like see it. a two-minute horse race in a two-week party. You know, it's <laughs> perfect for New Orleanians. They know how to, they know how to do it. It always seems to conflict with Jazz Fest, so that's a little bit of a bummer. Sometimes I've had to, uh, you know, pick and choose which weekend I'm going to go. Uh, but uh, it's an incredible sport, man. You can ask any of the guys in the local media when, when the Pistons had their horses in the race a few years ago. It was the first introduction to a lot of our colleagues who came up here from New Orleans, and they were all blown away. They had no idea, one, it was so massive, and two, it, it was so fun. I mean, they all had a blast. A lot of them didn't know much about horse racing. It doesn't matter. It's an incredible uh, event. You, it's one place I've ever been in my coverage of sports 
where you have all of humanity in one spot. I mean, you have some of the richest people in the world, billionaires, uh, you know, sheiks from Dubai, uh, some of the richest deep-pocketed people in, in America. You have celebrities, you know, you have all these actors, actresses, uh, Tom Brady, all these athletes are there. Uh, and then you have degenerate horse players, and then you have like college kids, the whole infield. So when I was growing up in high school, I mean, all we did was just go to the infield, which is basically like jazz fest. It's like they're having jazz fest out in the middle of the infield. There's no music out there, but it's just a huge party and everybody's getting smashed. And then you have this other scene up in the, in the crowd where you have these rich, incredibly well-dressed people. And it's just a people watching Mecca. I mean, you get overloaded with your senses when you're there because there's just so much to see and do. Uh, even if you don't, like betting on horses, it's it's much bigger than that. Well, you really don't have to bet on horses to, to enjoy it. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my grandfather used to take me to the fairgrounds at, <clears throat> at least two or three times a year. Um, and, of course, I'm not betting. I mean, of course, that, that could be why I'm a degenerate today. Uh, yeah. Spent all the time in the fairgrounds like I did when I was a kid. And and oddly enough, I haven't been I, – I was probably went to the fairgrounds more between the ages of – five and 16 and I've gone since then. And it's a shame. It's, it's not my plan. It's just, I'm so busy. I don't get a chance to, to do it as much as I, I would like to, but um, you, like you say, you don't have to, to, to bet on horse racing to have a fun at the track. That's one thing that I like about it. Well, I, th- I have to blame my parents probably for introducing me to the world of betting because we used to do, we used to have a derby party when I was really young Every year, like everybody in Louisville, you have a party, watch the race. I mean, the coverage is all day long. It starts like at 9 a.m. in Louisville. Right. And you watch it. And what we would do for the Derby every year is just my mother would put together a little, you know, the, write down all 20 horses and make a little tab, you know, a little piece of paper, put them in a hat. And everybody put in like a dollar. Sometimes maybe as we got older, it was $5. My mom would put in my money for me when uh-huh. I was little. Right. And you draw, you know, you everybody would draw twenty horses out, and then you could watch the race and you'd win the pot. And it might be twenty bucks, it might be a hundred bucks, but the point was it, it was just something fun to watch the race for a little investment. And uh, we did that every year, and so that kind of got me started down this slippery slope we're all on. Maybe I'll do that with my kids this this weekend. That would be fun to do to introduce them yeah. to horse racing. Um, yeah, it gets them interested. It's a good way to do it. Before we get into the field, what is the city of Louisville like um, this week? Like, what are people doing during the week before the race? Obviously, I know people coming to town early, and and the, I'm sure the local restaurants are, are packed there. But what are people doing in the city during the week? Well, I mean, the the the, the track now has started having racing from Tuesday okay. all the way up. So it, it used to not be that way, Jim. It used to start on like Thursday. Now it's all the way up to Tuesday because so many people come in for the whole week. I mean, there's, there's a huge parade, like a, you know, Derby classic parade. That's uh that's I think on Thursday, they have a great steamboat race down on the Ohio river where people go down and they have all these steamboats racing against each other. Uh, you know, there's fireworks displays at night. Uh, the, the worst part about it, frankly, is this, it's not like new Orleans and that we have so many big events here all the time. Um, you know, that it kind of gets spread out on the gouging, if you know, yeah. I mean, this is the one week or two where if you have an Airbnb or you have a hotel there, the prices just get jacked. I mean, they're through the roof, and uh, it's hard to find a good deal. You really have to know somebody there to stay with them or get a deal. 
because it's unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, luckily I have family there, but if you go up there, it's not an inexpensive proposition. I mean, just getting a, a basic box at the Derby where you literally have like six uh, fold out metal chairs sitting on a slab of concrete. That's what you get. And that might cost you $3,000 oh for, for the weekend. Now you get it for the weekend and that's for all six seats. So you can divide it up, but it's not cheap. When you add that into your, to your, you know, your hotel expenses, your travel expenses, I mean, it gets way up there. So, uh, but that's one way to experience the Derby. I tell other people, the other ways is to go in the infield and it's, I think it's probably like about a $50 uh, infield pass. And you can just go in there for 50 bucks. Now you don't get to see the races very well. They have big screens, but that's another way to experience it for cheaper, but you're also battling to see humanity the entire time. That's probably my kind of people. So yeah, it's, it's a blast, man. If it rains, it's just like jazz fest. There's all kinds of oh. like, you know, debauchery going on. You talk uh, about and, it. And it's always fun. We used to do a story when I worked at the courier journal, on all the different ways people tried to sneak in alcohol, sort of like Jazz Fest. <laughs> right. And that was one of my favorite stories every year. People got so creative coming up with sneaking like kegs under wheelchairs and really all, all kinds of things, man. It was, it was fun to see the uh, creativity. That sounds like a book by itself. Um, look, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I spent uh, four days in Vegas and um, I actually, well, the, the company's going to pay. Don't, I hope they're not listening to this right now. The company's at 90 bucks for a buffet. I, and I didn't know it was 90 bucks until I was at the front of the line and there were too many people behind me. And I basically had no choice and was handing my credit card over at the time. But 90 bucks for a buffet. It cost me, and I'm not joking, a water, a bag of peanuts, uh, mixed nuts, I'm sorry, and a small thing of Pringles. 60 bucks. I had no idea. What? I was in the hotel. It was in the hotel. Yeah. I'd already, I'd already, I had no idea. So yeah, next, yeah. No, when I go to Vegas, I'm gonna have to look. And so that's where we are these days, buddy. It's not just Louisville doing that stuff with the chip. That sounds like a bargain almost. Consider how much the draft costs for Saints fans that went last week. It was insane. That does sound insane. All right, let's talk about the Derby itself and uh, the Louisiana Derby winner. Epicenter is one of the favorites, uh, just behind favorite Zandon at, at three to one. Seven to two is epicenter. Uh, do you like the Louisiana Derby winner in, the, in this race? And do you think this is uh, two questions? Do you think this is a year where uh, we could have a triple crown threat? Yeah, I do like epicenter. That's who I'm going to pick. Um, you know, the Louisiana Derby winner has not won the Kentucky Derby since 1996. Grindstone won it. It's only happened twice, Jim. The other one was black gold back in, I think, 19, like 24 or something. So it, it hasn't regularly produced the winner of the Kentucky Derby. But I think that tide could be turning last year. If you throw out Medina Spirit, who was, you know, uh, right. was, um, you know, um, what was, what's the word I'm looking for? Disqualified. Disqualified from the victory. Uh, you know, the second, third, fifth, and sixth place finishers in the Derby were all from the Louisiana Derby. So Louisiana Derby dominated last year's race. If you look at how the finish came out and I think epicenter, you know, it, it, what's funny, Jim, is everyone nationally is kind of talked off this horse. He's not getting a lot. I mean, obviously seven to two, they respect him, but uh, they're kind of, I think maybe the Louisiana Derby history uh, maybe playing into that. 
but you're not hearing as much buzz for him, and I don't know why. He's got the leading trainer in the history of horse racing, Steve Asmussen, who's never won the Kentucky Derby, so that's a storyline there. Uh, he's 0 for 27. He's never had a horse in the Derby, though, as qualified and as accomplished as Epicenter. So I think it's a little misleading. He's taken some long shots there. The two great horses he had in the Derby were Curlin and Gunrunner, two of the most accomplished thoroughbreds of the last two decades. And both of them drew inside. Both of them were not as highly, uh, I think, far along in their careers as Epicenter is. In other words, they bloomed late kind of on the three-year-old path. But both of them had trouble because it's a 20-horse field, and when you're down on the inside, it's just simple physics, right? You start running up the rail, and the whole rest of the field's coming over to get over on the rail, and you can get shuffled back behind a a crowd of horses, and then you have to navigate that. And that's what happened to Gunrunner and to Curlin. So I think people are also concerned about that. But I'm not concerned about it at all. I mean, I just did our our NOLA.com, Tom Spicune, annual Kentucky Derby handicapping contest, uh, a column, I should say. And I do it every year, and we have some of the top handicappers in the country. And I know they're probably biased because they're based here. Uh, We all saw Epicenter, but I think of the five, I think three of them picked Epicenter to win, and maybe one other one picked them to come in second. So at least he's got the local contingent here. Um, I think if he gets out of the gate and gets a good position, he doesn't necessarily have to get the lead. I hope he kind of doesn't get the lead but is up out of uh, traffic trouble and is in maybe the second flight of horses stalking the leaders, I think he's going to win. But if he gets a bad break and gets in a mid-pack or something, he, he may be in trouble. The winner this year, I mean, every and I know that's a crapshoot question. I um, mean, you can answer yes or no and just throw it up there and every year. But the, is this a triple crown type of year? Is there uh, – I mean – is I mean, we're predicting Epicenter to win. Is Epicenter the kind of horse that could become this dominant horse that, that goes down in lore that we get once every 15 or 20 years? I mean, I know the Triple Crown isn't yeah. won every 15 or 20 years, but there's a horse that we remember the name every 15 or 20 years or so. I think he's got that kind of potential. I mean, he hasn't done anything wrong. The hard thing is to keep staying in the right form for this long. That's hard to do. I mean, he's already won... I mean, he's, he's like a nose away from winning all three of the Derby prep races in, at the fairgrounds. Then you have to win the Kentucky Derby. Then you go to the Preakness, and that's holding your form for a long time. And I think it's a really competitive group of three-year-olds. Like, uh, I think that's another thing that plays into the Triple Crown. When you don't have a lot of competition, it's easier to obviously right. win it. This year, I think there's a lot of really good horses, and that's why I think you're seeing the odds. I, I'll be surprised if anybody in this Derby is favored lower on when they break from the starting gate lower than like seven to two, I'll be shocked. I think it could be four to one because I think there's so many good horses to spread out the betting pool. Now there's a horse out of California that we don't know enough about yet. His name's Taba and he's won both of his races. He's only raced twice, which is highly unusual to come into the Kentucky Derby with only two starts, but he's brilliantly, uh, you know, fast. He's won both these races with buyer speed figures over 100. Uh, no other horse in the race, even Epicenter, has two 100 or two triple-digit buyer speed figures. The problem is he's just inexperienced. He's he's been running in fields of like five and six horses out in California, so he hasn't had to encounter a lot of traffic. Uh, what's it going to be like Saturday when he breaks with 20 other horses and 150,000 people? Is he going to have the 
mindset and the mentality to overcome potential trouble. I think that's the question on him, but he could be a freak. I mean, I think the, the owner paid like $1.7 million for this horse. Uh, so there's obviously great potential there. He's one, I mean, if he runs off and wins the Kentucky Derby, he could be a potential triple crown uh, horse as well, just because of the freakish talent. Are you giving me two names for my box trifecta? Now I need a third name to, to throw in there with Epicenter and Taba. I'm going to give you two others. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to edge. All right. So my other horse that I love from the fairgrounds, and he's going to be good price is Zozos. Uh, maybe I'm biased because I've, I've followed You've been him. Talking about, you talked about Zozos uh, uh, over a month ago. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's getting completely overlooked in this race. I love it. I love that he's getting overlooked. He's breaking from the 19-hole way outside, so I think that's part of the reason. But I think he's a brilliant horse, and I think he's going to be 20 to 1 or higher. He's 20 to 1 right now, yeah. Yeah, I think he's going to get under bet, and I love that. I mean, I think he's going to get good position, and he's trained by Brad Cox, who's as good as they come. And I love that, that he's getting overlooked. So I think he, he's – look, he ran two, two links, two and a half links behind Epicenter, and Epicenter had – had uh, you know might be the best horse in the race so what if you like epicenter you have to like zozos in my right. opinion uh and i love that he's getting overlooked and then the other horse one of my good uh handicapping colleagues steve Dittman in town who i really respect his his acumen he really likes mo donagle who's in the one hole that also has caused people to jump off his bandwagon and i like that because you know just as we said epicenter's in the three hole Everyone's going to be coming over. Well, Mo Donegal is strictly a closer, so that's not going to affect him. And he's one of the horses that guarantee you when they get to the lane, the top of the stretch, and a lot of these horses are tired and they've never run a, a mile and a quarter before, he's going to be accelerating. I mean, he's a, a, a deep closer who I think can close in. I don't know if he can win because I think he's going to have so much to do, but I think he's going to be every bit of 10 to 12 to 1, and I think he could definitely hit the board. I got to see if they'll let me do it just one, one time at the fairgrounds. Down the stretch, they come. I got to do it more. Just one, just one time, I got to I gotta do it. You know, maybe they'll let me. I doubt it, but uh, who knows. All right. Uh, so there are our horses, Epicenter, Taba, Mo Donegal, and Zozos. All right. Yes. So we're going to do, we're gonna do a, a four-horse box trifecta, um, and uh, we're going to win some money this weekend at uh, – I like it. Virtual downs, uh, even though we're going to do it from here. By the way, before we move on, uh, what uh, what kept you from Churchill this weekend? Well, frankly, uh, and I know we were talking about maybe talking about this, is the, the book project that I'm working on with Steve Gleason. Okay. We just kind of finalized that a, a week or so ago, and I've got some duties on that. Uh, mainly going to be hanging with Steve and Michelle all weekend uh, to, to work on getting started on that because we have a one-year timeline to get the book done, and that's a very accelerated timeline. Yep. Most of the books I've worked on in the past have been 18 months. Uh, with football season thrown into the timeline there in the fall, I'm not going to have as much time to work on it. So I've got to make hay, as they say, <laughs> to pardon the pun. Oh, pardon the pun. There you yeah. go. <laughs> but I've got, to, I've got to get on that, so that's keeping me away. And it's, it's hard to not be there, to be honest with you. We're going to end the show and uh, this segment talking about the book, and you can let people know about it in just a minute. All right, let's get into the Saints. And um, first off, I mean, the big news of the week is the Honey Badger and Tyron Matthew coming back to New Orleans. And uh, 
you know, I got to say it's a little bit of a surprise. I, I know that that uh, he wanted to come here, and, and, and it's not a surprise that the Saints wanted him. It's more of a surprise that usually when these things get talked about, they don't mess, they don't happen, and uh, you're let down, and you're like, you know, you get, go from this high Saints fans, and then you drop down on, on your butt, and he signs with the Packers or something. Uh, but uh, it was clear that, that Tyron Matthew wanted to come here back home to New Orleans. It was clear that the Saints wanted him. They made the cap work, and, and to me, Dunk, I think that it's one of the the perks of the Deshaun Watson thing not working out because had the Deshaun Watson thing worked out, the honey badger would have never come to New Orleans. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of this stuff that played out wouldn't have happened if they would have gotten Deshaun Watson. Uh, so I, I love the signing. I love everything about it. I mean, he's one of my favorite players that I've ever covered. Uh, I, I love his story. I love that he was not highly recruited. You know that. I mean, he was not a big-time recruit. So he's always kind of had a chip on his shoulder. He's undersized. But I've never covered a guy uh, in my career on defense that's, that's impacted a game in so many different ways as Tyrone Matthew. I mean, the guy's just incredible. He he picks off passes. Uh, you know, he strips quarterbacks. And, and he's always looking to, to score as a defender. It's amazing this mentality he has. His instincts are off the charts. He's a punt returner, and we saw that at LSU. Uh, and I think at this stage of his career, he's a perfect fit for the secondary, which lost Malcolm Jenkins right. uh, as a retirement. I think he'll fill that role of kind of the uh, consigliere, you know, the the mentor role. But I think he's still got a lot left in the tank. Now, I would say, you know, it does worry me a little bit that Kansas City just didn't, go for him at all. I mean, that, that surprised me to some degree. Uh, but I do think the Saints are so good on defense that he can play a very niche role. And Dennis Allen is such a good coach. He, he's, his background is on DBs. That's what he played. He played safety. Um, and Chris Richard, the, the DBs coach, they're two of the best coaches in the league, I think, in the secondary. They'll carve out the exact role for, for Tyron Matthew in, in – maybe mask some of the weaknesses he has at this stage of his career. Uh, I think the, the defense now has upgraded its secondary. I was never a huge Marcus Williams fan. I mean, I'm, I have nothing against him personally, but right. I just felt like he was kind of overrated. You know, we tend to do that sometimes here in New Orleans. We fall in love with, with Saints players. I always felt like, he was getting a lot of hype, and I just didn't see it when I covered the games. I mean, I think he's a good player. Certainly the Ravens think he's a good player. They gave him a ton of money. But I, I would much rather have Tyron Matthew back there. He's my kind of guy. He makes more plays. He's instinctive. Uh, he's mentally tough. He's physically tough. I'll stick his nose in there. But I think they've upgraded at safety, and I don't see any holes in this defense right now. Well, no no offense, and I don't. I, I'm, he's probably not listening, so it doesn't matter anyway. Don't hold it against them, but I don't think that Saints fans were crying every time you bring up that name. And ever since he's been here, for him, for Marcus Williams, he probably had to go elsewhere to get a fresh start. I'm sure he thinks about the Minneapolis miracle just about every day of his life, and somehow is reminded of it. Again, don't hold that against him. Players make mistakes and things happen, but I mean, they won't be thinking about that in Baltimore. Well, yeah, it was an egregious mistake. I mean, I don't know. I've watched that play probably a hundred times in my life. I still don't understand how, how it happened. I mean, it's, I, uh, 
Uh, it's the craziest play, and I've covered the league for 20-something years. I've never seen anything like that. But it, it also was reflective of his poor tackling. I mean, he, he did that throughout his career. Right. He got better last year, uh, but uh, he was one of the worst tacklers at that position that I've ever covered. And I think we tend to overlook the negative by looking at some of his positive, which is incredible range, uh, you know, played center field. He's got better range than Tyree Matthew. That's that's no doubt about it. But that's what I'm getting back at the the coaching. They'll figure that out with Marcus May coming in. As long as Marcus May stays healthy, uh, I think they're better at second at, at, in the secondary. And I think his defense has the potential, the potential to be the best that I've covered. And that's saying something because I, my first year on the beat was 2000. And that was a wrecking crew, man. That, that that 2000 defensive line with Leroy Glover and Joe Johnson and Norman Hand, uh, you know, they were just incredible. I think they had 60-something sacks. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that record will ever be broken, even with adding an extra game. I don't think we'll ever, we'll ever see that many sacks. Um, and, and that Hakeem was a dominant defense. Hakeem dropped the ball. Yeah. No, it was just a dominant, <laughs> dominant front four. I mean, every one of them was good. And I think this defense, the, the defensive line – in particular, uh, I'm, I'm kind of amazed the Saints have been able to sign as many of these veteran. Look, they're guys that maybe don't wow you when they sign them like Tyree Matthew, but, you know, Contavious Street, uh, Jaleel Johnson, they're starting caliber defensive linemen. And I don't know why they're elected to come to New Orleans because the Saints are already stacked on the defensive line. When you look at uh, Taco Charles, he was a first-round draft pick. I, I thought that was a great signing. Yeah, and he he's a first-rounder. He's going to play a rotational spot here. This is a guy that, like, can play. And, and yeah. Tano Passenbaugh is also another one. I mean, like, he fits their profile, these towering, tall, stout defensive linemen. And Ryan Nielsen's such a good coach. They're going to roll these guys in and out. Right. They're 10 deep. Uh, I don't know. Somebody's going to get cut. One or two players on this team that are going to go elsewhere and, and not only make it but be good players other places. It's the deepest defensive line the Saints have ever had, and, and I think that's how you win games, frankly, in the NFL. I was going to ask you, do you think this is the best defense since the Dome Patrol defense back in the Jim Moore days? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, we'd go to that, at least far back to that 2000 defense that they had. Uh, you know, the Saints' 2009 defense wasn't statistically great, but it was right. big play defense, opportunistic, Darren Sharper. Uh, I think this defense, now you add – it, it reminds Tyron Matthew reminds me a lot of say Darren Sharper. Who yeah, that was, you know that's exactly the name I was going to ask you. Right, was, he came in late in his career, was a All Pro Pro Bowler, 100. Not quite the same player, but look how many plays he made just with his smarts and his instincts. That and year he had a, he had a streak of like he had a streak of like three or four early in the season, where three or four games in a row he had picked off a pass and scored. Yeah, uh, oh no, it was it was nothing like I've ever seen. And we all kind of took it for granted. And then you saw the next year, they didn't get any of those plays. Yeah, right. It was just a different year. I mean, it's hard to duplicate that. But I think Matthew gives you that. Uh, you know, that's, that's his strength is his instincts, his nose for the ball. And frankly, I don't think they really had that, uh, you know, in the secondary. That's really not what Marcus Williams did. I mean, he would make a pick every once in a while, but not the instinctive kind of read and, and react kind of pick that we've seen uh, Tyree Matthew that was kind of his bread and butter. Well, I know this isn't a normal place to enter what the Saints did in the draft, but we're talking about defense. And I know I'm probably in the minority when I say this, but this this fifth-round pick, DeMarco Jackson, I think this kid can come in 
if there's any weakness at all in this defense or even, I guess, opening on this defense, it's that linebacker. I mean, we know Demario Davis is in there and, uh, you know, they, Pete Werner's played well and, and Zach Barn, we, we don't know. We're still waiting to see how good he's going to be. But I think this kid fits this team and can get in there and play right away as a fifth-round pick, which would be an incredible pick. But uh, that's where I'm leading with this draft. I, the, he's not my favorite pick of the draft, but I, I really like this kid. And I, I think, wow, that's a great pick on day, on day three. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. He's their kind of guy, you know, team captain, really productive, senior guy. I mean, you know, just all the boxes, the Saints like to check with their draft prospects. And, uh, yeah, that's the one spot I guess you'd say, oh, my God, there's not a, you know, certifiable Pro Bowl caliber guy. There. Right. But, I mean, every, every team in the league, I, I wrote this in our roundtable today, like every team in the league in the salary cap area, you, you can't have stars at every position, you know. Uh, there's going to be some spots like that. And I think uh, he does fortify a position, kind of steps into the role that Quan Alexander departed. In other words, you, you needed to get another linebacker for depth, if, if nothing else. And we know he's going to be good on special teams right away. So, yeah, I love that pick as well. Or you could be the Falcons and not really have hardly any pro bowlers or the Panthers, too, right. for that matter. But that's a whole other story. We, we, won't, we won't rag on those guys until September. Um, all right. Speaking of the draft, um, I thought for this team, this is one of the better first round pick. Uh, you know, you get two picks and you get Chris Olave and Trevor Penning, but I'm going to start with Trevor Penning because to me, you talk about a need when you lose a Teron Armstead and you are able to draft a kid that there's no doubt in my mind that this kid's going to come in and start right away at the position, at the place you need him to start. It wasn't like when we got Ramchek and, and Ramchek, you know, slotted in at right tackle or whatever. And, you know, you bring in uh, a Cesar Ruiz who could play a center or a guard, and he ends up playing guard, can, can fill in. I just think this is a this – is, this might be one of the – and look, he hadn't even suited up once, hadn't even had a practice yet. But I think that Trevor Penning could be one of those picks you look back on and say, man, the Saints got lucky that that kid fell that far. Yeah, I love, I love that pick. And it's funny uh, – both he and Chris Olave, and I know we'll talk about Olave in a second, but both of them were, I mean, they were slotted to the Saints in a zillion mock drafts. Yes. No surprise in either one of those guys. And he he fits their profile. You know, he's a massive guy, big, big, tall range. You got country kid. You know, his dad's like a truck driver, you know, blue-collar dude, but more athletic than people think. And, you know, we talked to Jim Nagy, the senior bowl executive director, uh, after the draft, and and Jim, longtime scout in the NFL, worked for the Seahawks and Patriots, and he just raved over Penning. So I, I trust his evaluation. Uh, this is a guy he's had some he's had some issues with penalties in college. So I think that's the one red flag you got to have is like, okay, what's it going to be like when he gets in the NFL with these elite athletes? Uh, so that's something we have to watch. But I do think the Saints have flexibility there. If for some reason he doesn't pan out at left tackle. I think they could easily flip Ramchek over there and make a seamless transition if that's the way they have to go. Uh, but I'm eager to see him. He's he's going to end up being a very popular player because of his playing style. I guess I'm going to pull out my old my, my old uh, Saints. Don't, don't say the same name. I'm going to say. Are you going to say Cal Turley? Oh no, no, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say Cal Turley. I mean, you know, Cal Turley became very popular here. I mean, he was a take no prisoners kind don't of. Don't throw badass. any helmets though, buddy. 
Yeah, protecting Aaron Brooks, right? And I right. think Penning's going to have that same kind of cult following here once once people get to know him. I was going to say he could be, and, and uh, this guy isn't really a bad guy, but uh, he's the same kind of country, kind of came out of nowhere when he got here, and I'm super old, so I can remember these things. But Stan Brock, I mean, he, he could yep. be that that kind of play, you know, just the – the beard and, uh, you know, and, and just coming yeah. in and, and San Brock started from the time he got here in New Orleans. So oh, he was he could great. Be a kind of player. San Brock was a great player. And I think he started for over a decade. He did. One of the great offensive linemen in, in history. I think if you do a all time saints team, Stan Brock's one of your starting linemen for sure. So yeah, uh, no, I, I love, I love the pinning pick. They had to have it. In my opinion, that was, I know saints fans wanted the receiver because that's the sexy position that everybody right. sees. In my opinion, left tackle was by far the biggest need they had. Well, speaking of receiver, I found it interesting. And I'm, I'm not saying it was the, the wrong thing to do because obviously this team thought that Chris Olave was the best fit for, for their wide receiving core. There were other, I've had, I don't know, dozens of people ask me since Thursday, why didn't they take Jamison or why didn't they take, you know, blah, 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 blah. Because, and my answer is because the Saints think that Chris Olave is the best fit for this team. Um, and so I have no problems with it. But I found it interesting that they thought the need to trade up. They, they wanted Chris Olave so bad, they couldn't wait for more picks because there were other receivers. If you don't get Olave, you're still going to get somebody pretty darn good at 16. They felt the need to trade up to get Chris Olave, which I found super interesting. Yeah, and I think time's going to tell – if that was a good move or not. I mean, I think we'll find out. In particular, I think what there's a couple things. One, Olave's skill set was valued. It wasn't just any receiver. It was a Z receiver, a flanker, traditional deep threat, speedy receiver. That's what they needed to complement Mike Thomas. Uh, I love Traylon Burks, but he's similar in a lot of ways to Mike right. Thomas. Probably a better runner after the catch than Thomas. But they needed a guy that could – they, they've had different skills to complement. So that stood out. But I do think they paid a steep price. I mean, we'll look down the road. Uh, you know, there's some other receivers they could have addressed maybe in round two or, uh, you know, even traded back and gotten like Sky Moore, uh, Jahan right. Dotson, that are similar kind of players, maybe a little more slot uh, restrictive receivers than Olave, who's clearly an outside receiver and can also play in the slot. So maybe that flexibility is what what gave uh, Olave uh, a higher grade. Uh, but I'll be interested to see three years down the road how Olave compares to some of these guys that, like you said, didn't require you to trade up. And invent, I mean, they they gave away a lot of draft capital to get this guy. I mean, when you go back to the fact they traded with Philadelphia to get a second first round pick, uh, and the thing that gives me a little pause on it. JD is you've got a guy like Jeff Ireland who is one of the best talent evaluators in the league. Right. I think everyone should have full confidence that he could have gotten a good player in the third or fourth round with those picks they traded away. I mean, he's proven that he's gotten guys like Chauncey Gardner, Johnson, you know, Trey Hendrickson, uh, David Onyemata. I mean, these are really good players in the mid rounds. So I, I do have some pause on what they gave up, but it clearly tells me, they don't care about the future, man. They're trying to win right now. And and maybe they get those picks back with their compensatory selections. Uh, maybe Sean Payton goes to coach somewhere else and they get a trade. Maybe they're thinking, we'll make up those picks down the road. 
but it's a lot, a steep price for a guy that most talented evaluators believe is a number two receiver. We've talked about it. I mean, this defense is kind of in, in a similar position to where the offense was a few years ago. I mean, it's kind of win now or or else mode. Um, they're they're getting older. I mean, people don't realize. I mean, Demario Davis is in his thirties now. I mean, you, you bring in Honey Badger, he's he's thirty, which he made sure we all knew yesterday that thirty's not old. I wish I was thirty again. Uh, you get you got some guys in the D line that are, that are thirty or approaching thirty. So I mean, you're talking about a team that's it's kind of these players are probably at their peak right now. Um, so it is, you know, you're putting a lot of eggs in the, in the Jameis basket. Um, you don't know who your running back's going to be. So there are certainly question marks on offense. You better hope that O-line does what you think it does uh, want it to do. And they're not very deep there. So uh, as good as the defense is, and what a role reversal. I'm just not, uh, you know, what scares me, I guess, if you're a Saints fan, is they better not have any injuries on offense. Right. And they better find someone to come in. Maybe this undrafted free agent that they're bringing in or whatever, they need a running back and they need one bad. Yeah, I think that's one spot we could see them maybe add to uh, between now and training camp. I'm not, maybe they know something we don't know about Camaro. That's the other thing I thought yeah, is maybe, maybe they're getting intel that maybe this thing's going to get pushed back and they don't have to address it this year. Uh, but I think they're, they're not very deep on offense. And I agree with you. If they have some, Injuries, and we know they're going to have them. I mean, it's the NFL. Everybody does. Gonna that's right. So that's an area that I think they could use some depth. Um, but otherwise, I mean, defensively, the defensive line I think is very deep. Secondary has got great depth. I mean, when you've got guys like uh, Bradley Roby, um, P.J. Williams, I mean, versatile veterans that can play come off the uh, bench, I think it gives you some flexibility there. Uh, but I do, uh, to me, this season's going to come down to Jameis Winston. I mean, plain and simple. Is he going to play at the level that we saw him playing and starting to play early last season? Is, is he, are he and Dennis Allen and Pete Carmichael going to be able to approach the battery that we saw with Drew Brees and Sean Payton? I mean, that's the question mark. We don't know. We're missing two generational Hall of Fame type of leaders and uh, it's it's kind of a great unknown with Winston and Dennis Allen and Pete Carmichael. So uh, that will play itself out, and it's going to be fascinating to watch one way or the other. I said this to my Facebook friends who complain about Jameis Winston, and here's the major problem. Here's the number one problem when it comes to Jameis Winston, and I tell this, and I'll tell it to Datitude listeners again. Repeat after me. Drew Brees is gone, and he's never coming back. Jameis Winston isn't Drew Brees. It's the only reason why people are are upset. Right. I mean, you know, sure, we almost got Deshaun Watson. Great. I mean, but to be honest, the, the money you save and are able to spend elsewhere, I think Jameis Winston, people aren't giving him enough credit. And I was not on the Jameis Winston bandwagon going into the season at all. Um so to, to say that I've been transformed after just seven games to see, I think this kid, he's got so much to prove, and he wants to be here. I think he's going to prove it. I think he's going to prove it. I really do. No, I agree with you. I mean, he, he's an endearing guy, man. When you talk to him, uh, there's, there's not a lot to not like. I mean, he's just uh, – he's got charisma. He wants to be good. He wants to do the right things. He's doing all the right things. And so Saints fans ought to buy into him. I mean, 
I look at these guys sometimes like Jameis Winston. I mean, Tyron Matthews is a good example. I mean, we forget they're young dudes. That's right. The league, and they mature and evolve as human beings. And sometimes I have to check myself and realize, you know, hey, I'm, when I was 21, 22 years old, I'm not, I'm not condoning what happened. I'm just saying that people mature at different times. And, and uh, I, I think we're seeing that with Jameis Winston. He's married now. He's a family man. And um, I think he recognizes the opportunity at hand here. I mean, this is a big year for him, a big year. I, I, you know, I could see if he has a successful season, the Saints tearing up that contract and giving him a big 100% long term. And he's the answer. And if he's not, they could walk away from it and they could be back in the quarterback market next year. Uh, so he knows that. Now, how does he come back from the injury? I, I think for him, the one thing I worry about is that is thinking too much about that and just just he just needs to be solid just like he was last year in those first uh seven games uh this defense special teams they're going to be able to lean on the running game uh i think they're going to be able to win a lot of games i think my column i wrote recently i think i was surprised it didn't get as much traction as it did but i think it it's it's on point in that the rest of America is either sleeping on the Saints or here in New Orleans, we're delusional. It's one of those two because I agree. The it, it's it's it, still it, seven and a half. The win total at Caesars, it's it's higher everywhere else, but it's seven and a half. So Caesars thinks that the Saints are either going to go seven and ten or eight and nine. I, 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 I don't understand it at all. And I look, I am not, like I've told you before, and I've told other guests I've had on this show and talk about this. I've been called Derry Downer for the last eight years. I mean, I if there's something negative about this team, I seem to bring it out, and I don't know why, and it is what it is. But I don't get this at all. I'm not being a homer. I don't understand this. I, to me, this is the floor for this team is nine wins. Yeah, no, I'm with you. That's what, that's what I'm getting at is that we're going to find out who's right, uh, but uh, I, I think there's certainly really good reasons to be optimistic. Uh, all the things we've talked about. I think they're forgetting, you know, Mike Thomas. Now, the one thing I would say from my years of covering the league, the one thing that I don't think people get sometimes, and I see it all the time from year to year, we all do this. You tend to think, okay, here's what the guy was last year, the year right. before, and that's what he's going to, you project him, and it, it's, just, it's not that seamless. I mean, guys drop off. It happens all the time. We see it. You know, in the league, look at, we talked earlier about Darren Sharper. Remember how great he was in 2009? Yeah. And then literally a year later, he was like a liability. Well, he had um, his issues. Well, I'm talking about on the field. I'm no, I know, but you don't know what, what was going yeah, on. Yeah, I know, but head I'm just saying, like, guys drop off. I mean, it, it, it's easy to say, hey, we got Cam Jordan and DeMario Davis. They're all pros. And Those guys are in their 30s, yeah. and suddenly things happen. And all of a sudden, they're out of the league in two years. You know, like it. It happens. It, it, we don't know if Mike Thomas is going to be the guy that won the offensive player of the year two years ago. We don't know that. I mean, we think he is, but he hasn't played in two years. Well, I mean, look at Drew Brees. I mean, to me, Drew Brees went from being Drew Brees to being almost Drew Brees to what is this guy doing out on the field? Like, and like that. I mean, yeah, and, and I mean, it, you, we don't, and you don't know what age it's going to be. It might be 32, it might be 37. And then you get freaks like Tom Brady. You, you, well, you have a freak like Tom Brady. There's not freaks. There's, on, there's only one of those. Uh, but, I mean, you just don't know. I mean, so you talk about Cam Jordan especially. 
I kept thinking that last year was going to be the year that we started to see. Agreed. All right, this is going to be the year he starts to look a little bit more like an old man. And no, he looks like Cam Jordan again. In fact, he looked as better as, as well, the, good as that. What was weird about that was the second half of the year is when he did it. Yeah. The first yes. half, everybody was like, is Cam Jordan going to get a sack? I mean, he was really started playing slow. Tampa. They fired him up. So I hope we play Tampa early in the season <laughs> this year. Yeah, no, I, I think for sure the Saints, you have to feel like they're at least a playoff team right now. Now, things can happen, but. I don't get the seven and a half wins. Matter of fact, you know, that would be a good bet if I were giving out betting tips. I've already me, done it. To me, that's uh, very low. I, I mean, I think the, the floor for this team is eight or nine wins. I mean, I'll tell you this. And, I mean, I don't normally throw out amounts, but I don't normally bet $100 on, on, a, fu- on a future win total. I mean, usually I like to spread it around and I'll pick eight or nine of them at 20 bucks here or 30 bucks here or whatever. I I put my max. That's my max on on anything. I put a hundred bucks on the Saints over. Well, I, yeah, he had about one hundred and thirty to one hundred, but uh, I put it on the Saints over. I don't. I'd really, barring injuries or barring Alvin Kamara's gone for half the season and we don't get another running back. And even then, I just don't understand how this team doesn't win at least at least eight games. I I just especially again, I don't uh, get the it. fact that the NFC is kind of weakened in the off season. I mean. I think yeah. the NFC is pretty wide open. I mean, you don't want to be in the AFC right now with quarterbacks. 100%. You know, you, but the NFC, name me the great quarterbacks in the NFC right now. There's not that many. So, No, name me and name me the great team. Give me a team that you fear in the NFC. I don't even fear Tampa Bay. They've beaten them four times in the last two years. Uh, you know, the team I like best in the NFC, and I liked them last year, and they kind of laid an egg in the front. I like San the Francisco. Cowboys. Uh, I think Cowboys. the Cowboys have the talent. And they've got a Agreed. good quarterback. And, like, they're the team that I think people are sleeping on a little bit. They won 12 games last year. And they kind of laid an egg against the 49ers. But the 49ers are tough, man. They're mentally – they're a physically mentally tough team. That's a bad matchup. I mean, they beat the freaking Packers on the road. They beat the Rams in that last game of the year. I mean, they can play with anybody. So I think it's uh, Mike think McCarthy. It, I know. And, look, I'm a Mike McCarthy guy. I think, I, I think he's gotten the Twitter – people of the world act like he can't coach. And it, uh, I just don't get it, man. I mean, he's, he's won everywhere he's been. They forget that. They forget yeah, that. They won 12 games last year. They act yeah. like they win with, in spite of him is what, what people act like. They just don't, they don't give him any credit. Uh, and I've always said when he was here in new Orleans, he made Aaron Brooks into a, a, a elite level, not elite, yes, but did. A very quality starting quarterback. And as soon as Mike left and went to San Francisco, Brooks's production fell off a cliff, and he was out of the league I for agree. Like two years. He had a big part in developing Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers didn't come out of college and become Aaron Rodgers. He got coached up by Mike McCarthy, and look, he's a brilliant talent, but let's give him some credit for, for some of this stuff. I mean, people act like he's this bumbling buffoon. It's, it's, it cracks me up. The perception of him outside the league compared to inside. The people that know what they're talking about, the coaches, the general managers, will tell you how highly respected Mike McCarthy is. Well, I agree with you that I think the Cowboys are are probably the most underrated team in the NFC. So, I mean, they're the team to fear. Uh, I think I agree with you. I think they're a great bet to to win the the conference championship and go to the Super Bowl. Although, again, the Saints are twenty to one to win the conference championship. They're five to one to win the division. 
I tell you right now, I don't care what anybody says. If you played this team somehow in a, in a vacuum and they didn't age, you play this season five times, the Saints absolutely, 100%, there's no doubt in my mind of winning the division at least once. And it's probably more yeah. than, than once. So no, I'm with you on that. I think they're, I think it's the, the division is probably 50 50 right now. I'm probably going to slight edge to Tampa just because of Brady, but uh, it won't surprise me if the Saints win the division. But you don't know what their chemistry is. And I know that they're, they're bringing back some of the guys um, that, that made them winners, but the, I, there's something going on in Tampa that's weird. And it wasn't just Bruce Arians. Uh, there's something weird going on over there. And uh, I think, it's going to play a part in this season. And I, I think that this is going to be Brady's last season. I really do. I, th- I was shocked that he left before that third year was up and he's still got numbers that he wants to break. And he said he wanted to play till he was 45 and he's going to be 45 this season. I think this is it for him. And especially if the saints put another uh, butt whipping on him and they don't win the division, then I definitely think he's gone. So We'll have to wait and see how that goes. I'm sure you and I will talk a lot more before then. Before I let you go, I do want to talk. We, we touched on it, but uh, talk a little bit about your book with, with Steve Gleason and how, how that came about and how that's working and how people can, uh, can follow the progress of that. Well, it's, uh, it's been a, like a, a long process, to be honest with you. Steve and I started collaborating on a proposal way back in the summer. Uh, it's something I think Steve's now 11 years into his diagnosis with ALS. And, yep. um, you know, he had a, a award-winning documentary that came out uh, called Gleason. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Anybody out there, I highly recommend it. It'll, it'll be ready to, to cry a little bit, but it's also a very funny, heartwarming story. But that, that was back right after his diagnosis. Most of the content happened back in 2012 and 13. And a lot's happened in Steve's life since then. And also, I think... It, the journey, the 10, 11 years that he's had with this disease has given him perspective that I think is going to be invaluable in this book. I mean, uh, the publisher, Knopf, out of New York, is the most prestigious publisher in the country. And they recognized right away that this is not just a football book. It's not an ALS book. It's a, it's a book to a wide audience that people, uh, you know, parents can relate to it. Husbands and wives can relate to it. I mean, there's so much in there about just how to live. And that's the story we're telling is kind of a story about the human spirit and, uh, you know, a love story between Steve and Michelle that's had to navigate some very difficult times. And they've come out the other side with this uh, incredible family. Uh, And so I'm really honored to be a part of it. If you get around Steve enough, you're around the Team Gleason people, Jim. I mean, they're just incredible people. Like everyone in his orbit, he he attracts incredible people, smart people, like giving, uh, selfless people. And so I think there's going to be so much there for people. Uh, it's basically going to be a memoir of Steve's life, but the life lessons he's learned along this incredible journey. And, and I told the people at Knopf at the publishing house, I said, of all the people I've covered in my career, uh, Steve's the most interesting, fascinating, and inspiring athlete I've covered. And that was probably true even without ALS. Uh, you know, this is an interesting guy. He just thinks differently. He's, he's counterintuitive in his the way he looks at life. You know, he's, uh, and to, to go through what he goes through every day, to live the way he lives, 
uh, is mind-boggling. And uh, I think uh, that's what the title is, Live Impossible, and that's kind of what he's doing. Uh, and so I'm, I can't wait to get into the process of writing it. We're going to start here this weekend of putting together a plan because we've got a one-year timeline, like I said, a uh, pretty accelerated timeline to get this to the publisher uh, this time next year. How hard is it to work with Steven? I know that, um, you know, he communicates pretty well, but for those of us that, that aren't around him a lot and uh, how, how do you work with him? Well, he has, uh, you know, the state of the art technology voice. He has a, he was smart enough and proactive enough to record. Like I think it was 1500 senses and praises with his old, when he had his voice and they, what they call it, voice banking technology, and they store your voice, and then they put it into a computerized synthetic voice. So he can communicate through that using what they call eye tracking software, where it's fascinating technology, where he can type out on a tablet screen in front of his face, because ALS doesn't affect, it doesn't affect two things, your eyesight, your eyes, or your brain. So he's a sharp, if not in some ways, he's probably sharper, uh, even though it's deteriorated uh, the rest of his muscle systems in his body, you know, his motor right. skills are gone, but he still can think and he still can see. So that's actually one of the worst parts of the disease is you're keenly aware of all the loss in your life. And not only that, the burden that you become to your loved ones. I mean, it's, and most people, when they get this disease, simply give up because the quality of life is so poor and you become such a burden to everyone around you because you can't move uh, that people give up and just succumb to the disease. Well, Steve's not like that. He's not wired that way. And he has the, uh, you know, resources and the support system to be able to live. He's got 24-hour caregiving. You know, he's got people. I'm going to see him this weekend at Jazz Fest. He's going to have Kyle and uh, Jen and some of his other caregivers that are with him all the time that are, they have the ability to pay for that and, and their resources. Most people don't, but he's able to type with his, with his eye tracking technology, type out sentences. Now it's 11, about 11 times slower than you or I communicate, normal human being communication. So he's a little slow and he admits it, but he's amazingly fast for someone to be able to do it. Yeah. So he'll type a lot of this book himself with using his eye tracking software. And then I'll, I'll work with him and, write some of it myself and we'll collaborate on the actual content. I find it absolutely amazing. Um, and in a multitude of ways, not just amazing that he can sit and communicate and, and he's still going. And I mean, we, we saw him, you know, for lack of a better word, really deteriorate, deteriorate in front of our eyes. And yet he, sometimes he seems happier than, than anybody you'll ever meet. I mean, the, the attitude of this guy, this is a special person. I, I mean, I guess there's a reason why, why Steve Gleason got the disease that he got because he can handle it and he's proven to the world that your life isn't over if you get something like this. It's, it's, that, it's incredible. That's the message. That's the message. And I think, you know, Thomas Morstead used to always tell me, I mean, he's still very close with Steve and Michelle. He used to say Steve is a, because Steve would come out to the Saints training facility almost every day and get into the, cold tub uh, that, the, that the Saints players use. And Thomas would say he's a daily dose of perspective for all of us. And I think it's perfect way to describe it. I mean, when you think you're going through tough times in your life, uh, Steve's got it 
you know, tenfold on that. And I think his attitude, as you said, the thing that's interesting about Steve, you know, that I think people will get reintroduced to this, especially some new Saints fans that maybe didn't, that didn't know Steve's story. But, I mean, he was an unbelievable player. I talked to Randy yeah. Mueller the other day about him. Like, Randy remembers scouting him, and Randy's the one that brought him in in 2000 to the Saints. I mean, he was an undersized linebacker at Washington State, but he led the Pac-10 in tackles. Uh, you know, he went to the Rose Bowl with Ryan Leaf. Washington State, when's the last time they were in the Rose Bowl? It's been, I don't think they've been back wow. since. And they and they weren't before that. And he was he's one of those guys that's just a, a, a born leader, and people gravitate to him. You know, they, they follow him. And we see it now in this new journey, post-playing career with Team Gleason, and how he's become basically the leading spokesman for ALS in the entire world. And uh, just a good example of, of his reach, uh, just w- when we signed the contract and when we agreed to the contract on the publishing deal, Steve was up in New York and Michelle and their family to see the music man on Broadway, which Hugh Jackman, of course, the great actor, right. uh, is the lead in that playing Harold Hill and Steve, Hugh Jackman, personally invited them up and had them over to his condo in New York the day of, of his performance. He's inspired by Steve's story and, and, and goes out of his way uh, to promote Steve's work and, and to donate to Team Gleason. It's people like that, Theo Epstein, right? I mean, I go to the Congressional Gold Medal ceremony in D.C. on Capitol Hill. They have a reception afterward, and there's Theo Epstein. I'm like, what, what's he doing here? He knows Steve's story. He doesn't have anything else to do these days. Yeah, but he flew into D.C., <laughs> right, to yeah. be there, to be a part of, of, of Steve's uh, celebration. Those are the, I guess those are the kind of people that follow Steve and, and uh, Bill Gates and, and, and Barack Obama. We're talking about some of the leading minds in the world. And um, Have you ever asked so, him, Dunk, have you ever asked him the question, um, and I think I know what the answer would be, but – to to be around all the uh, just think if if he had never got this disease and, and and obviously you'd rather not have the disease that's not the question but what this has done to be able to to be this inspiration not only to a community here in New Orleans which he kind of was anyway um, really the whole there's this whole like back nation I guess that 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 follows Steve Gleason and, and you go on Twitter and you look and you see how many followers he has and people that follow, but the people that he's been able to meet and, and how, what that's meant to him, Barack Obama, you talk about, and just, just wherever he goes. I mean, he's an inspiration and people want to meet, like the famous people want to meet him. You ever ask him that right. about that? Oh yeah. No, he's talked about it. I mean, he's keenly aware. I mean, he has a great story about that. I mean, he said it's kind of bittersweet. Uh, he talked about how, you know, he's gotten close to Pearl Jam. Yeah. And, uh, and Mike McCready, the guitar player for Pearl Jam, is one of his good friends from Washington State. And Steve tells this story in classic Steve fashion because he always has great sense of humor. He's like, yeah, I got pulled up on the stage, you know, well, pulled up. I mean, he was on, right. he was on the stage to play with Pearl Jam, I think, back early in his diagnosis. And... Uh, you know, he's up there with Pearl Jam, his favorite band ever, in front of 10,000, 20,000 people. And he goes, one part of me was like, man, this is freaking awesome. Like, he goes, then the other part of me was like, but it kind of sucks because I'm only up here because I've got this 
terminal disease, that's the only reason I'm up here. So he, he gets both sides of it. He knows like, hey man, I'm getting to do things that no one else gets to do. But I think at this point in his journey, he's realized it's given him a platform to reach people. And that's what we want to do with this book. I mean, they want to reach a global audience uh, and make a difference for people, not only people with ALS and any kind of adversity in your life. Uh, I think it's going to help give you motivation and see something in Steve because uh, JD, I've been over there, man, getting, getting through a day with him is not easy. I mean, he has to have caretakers get him out of bed. It's a 45 minute routine. They have to bathe him, groom him, dress him, feed him. I mean, he's like an infant in a lot of ways. And that can be, uh, you know, I think it could obviously take, could take its toll after a while mentally. And so for him to go through this and continue to be there for his, not only his family, I think that's a big part right. of his motivation is his kids to be a dad, to be a good influence in their lives. But also I think understanding that a lot of people out there look to him, a lot of the ALS patients, a lot of his fans, Looked him for inspiration and motivation in this their lives, and so he feels that I think that that not I don't want to say burden that's not the right word but it, it motivates him to keep going. Well, I can't wait to uh, to talk to you about this. I mean, we're obviously going to talk plenty more before the book comes out, but I can't wait till when this book comes out and we can talk about it. Uh, we'll dedicate a whole segment to it, uh, talk about it, and um, who knows, maybe have a a little snippet from, from Steve on the show. That, that would be great, but uh, looking forward to it. I'm glad you you've taken on this pro project and uh, I know you'll put it all, put your all into it. Yeah. It's going to be incredible. It's an honor just to work on it. So now we got to, as Steve and I said, Steve's got a great phrase. Matter of fact, I got it right here on my shirt. He's got a phrase say, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be awesome. That's kind of his mantra in life. You know, awesome ain't easy. It's, it's not going to be easy to put this out, but once we get it done, it's going to be incredible. Sounds good. We'll talk about it more then. And uh, Jeff Duncan, enjoy the Kentucky Derby, and uh, let's let's win a little little dough. Let's go Zozos. Just hit the board. <laughs> Zozos. All right. <laughs> I love it. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Jeff. All right. Thanks, buddy. Jeff Duncan, busy man, and I mean that. I mean, you say that about people, so-and-so's busy. No, Jeff Duncan is a busy man. He is getting it done. And somehow, finding a way to go to Jazz Fest through all of that. Good for him. Jazz Fest is not in my immediate future. I haven't been in a while. Uh, you know, I know I haven't been since before I had kids. So that's a long time ago. But that's okay. I do Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is my Jazz Fest, my French Quarter Fest. My every fest all combined into one. The only fest that I really do now is Greek Fest. And we've been doing that, although we haven't done it the past couple of years because it hasn't been around because of what COVID, but it's coming back this year and I will be at Greek Fest this year for sure. I don't remember the last time I missed a Greek Fest. It's been a while. So but Greek Fest and Mardi Gras, those are my two things. Pretty much uh, everything else, I'm home. But we still find ways to have a good time, right? It is New Orleans. That is going to just about wrap up the show. Uh, longer than usual show here on a Friday. We had some great stuff. Um, I couldn't find a way to cut it shorter. I thought I was going to talk to Dunk for it. happens every time I bring Dunk on. Um, I intended to be a half an hour and it turns into an hour. 45 minutes or an hour. 
But uh, great stuff. If uh, enjoy the Kentucky Derby, go out there. Um, like I said, with the with the honey badger coming in, things are changing. I don't get the whole seven and a half thing. Seven and a half wins. Saints going to be better than seven and ten. I will. In fact, um, I might go put some more money on it. I'm already at my quote unquote max for that, but I must be missing something. Unless they just in have a tremendous amount of injuries and or they don't get a running back or whatever. I mean, a whole bunch of things to me would have to happen for the Saints not to be seven and ten. Better than seven and ten. <clears throat> so we'll see. We're gonna end this show with a song that uh, you know, my wife said she had never heard this song before, but uh reminds me a little bit of my uh my father in law who passed away last year. Um, and we miss him dearly, but he was a huge horse racing fan. And I remember when we, when my wife and I first got together and that first derby, they owned, uh, Anselmo's restaurant back in the day and, uh, watching that first derby and he was all into it, man. He, he used to love betting on his horse racing. He really did. And, um, so every time I see the derby, uh, I think of him. And uh, it's certainly something I watch every year. And I will be watching tomorrow. And uh, I'm guessing you will too. So you have all the information you need. If you want to go place a little wager and have a little extra fun with it, or if you want to do something at home, don't give you some good ideas. We'll see what happens, and we'll see how right he is, and we'll talk about it next week. We want you to give a little hug, a little kiss to your wives, your moms, Mother's Day, don't forget them. If you haven't found your reservation yet, you still got time at the minimum. Go out there and get some flowers. Give them a little hug and a kiss. All the moms out there, we salute you. And we'll see you next Friday here on Datitude. Peace and love, my friends. Right.